Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, a podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse. My guest this episode is Tim Akers. He is a science fiction fantasy author of The Burn Cycle from Solaris Books, as well as The Horns of Ruin, featuring Ava Forge, published by Peer Books. His upcoming Books of the Winter Sun will appear from Titan Books in January 2016. The Pagan Knight is the first book of that series. And Tim, I think, was an author I came across on Twitter, probably in a conversation with Cameron Hurley. And then I realized Tim lives in the town right next to me, and I figured I can finally achieve my lifelong dream of stalking some author and meeting them in a coffee shop in person. Well, it was a tea shop, let's be honest. It was a tea shop. We've since done some gaming together and chatted about books a few times. I'm now terrified of ever giving you a book recommendation again, since <laughs> a few of the ones whose praises I've sung, you have you have not been quite as impressed by. I'm really I'm a hard read. There's just, there's no way around that. There are books that are really good that I hate. So don't don't ever feel bad about that. And I'm very sort of understanding of different people like different things. So I never think bad about somebody because they like a book I don't like. That would be silly of me. One of the things I've been noticing and that I've been noticing more since doing the podcast is the different kinds of things that people read for and the different kinds of things that people quick to. I realized that I care a lot about setting. I would like my plots to be straightforward and don't notice characters a lot. Yeah. And I have started to realize how weird that is when compared to many other people. I, I wouldn't call that weird. I would say that it is slightly atypical in fantasy, but more prevalent in science fiction. Science fiction tends to be more idea-driven. I mean, this is just my opinion, but mm -hmm. it tends to be more idea-driven and, and the characters and such can get kind of flipped aside and fantasy is a little more character. It depends. There's a movement toward character-driven narrative these days that I think is both good and bad. I think we've mistakenly thrown out a lot of the things that made fantasy great in the first place, but the genre needed to evolve some, I think. You're going to tell me that Dragonlance isn't the pinnacle of the fantasy genre. I, I couldn't tell you. I've only read one of those. Oh, my goodness. I thought and that... I, I only read the one, and I got about a third of the way through it, and the king of, like, the barbarians or something killed an orc and then looted the body. And I'm like, nah, I'm out. <laughs> that's, that's as far as I go. <laughs> Sorry, guys. No, that was, that was kind of formative in... Junior high, I think. See, I had a very strange childhood as far as what I was able to read because my parents were very, very conservative religiously. And so I was not allowed to read fantasy like free range or free range. Mm -hmm. uh, I had to submit everything to my parents and have them look at it before they decided if it was a thing that I could read or not. So a lot of things that most fantasy readers and writers read at that age, uh, I never read. And it was only later that I came back to a lot of that stuff. So what were some of the things that got approved? Very little. Obviously, Lewis and Tolkien mm -hmm. and McCaffrey entirely because uh, there's a, a famous pastor in Florida whose name I've forgotten, but who was a big Ann McCaffrey fan. Okay. And he was a guy that they respected, and he mentioned it on, on one of his shows, and they said, sure, you can read this all you want to. So, Did you... Did you know that you were interested in science fiction and fantasy? Oh, yeah. No, that was, it was my primary interest. Okay. And that's a lot of the reason that I ended up writing so much stuff when I was young because I wasn't given access to reading it. So I had to create. I couldn't just consume. And the same goes for gaming. My parents were adamantly opposed to, to Dungeons and Dragons. And if I wanted to play a game like that, I had to create it. So uh, I started making my own role-playing games very, very young before, before I had any access to D&D to &D in general. And again, all that changed in high school and college. But you know, when I was young, everything was creation-driven. I, I made everything. 
Mm-hmm. And then in high school and college, do you remember any of the important books? Yeah. So there, there actually is a, a deeply seminal moment in my, my high school career. I had been reading uh, Keith Lommer a lot and Fred Saberhagen. Mm-hmm. Uh, those were accepted novels. And one of my teachers uh, at Asheville recommended William Gibson to me. And I went out and picked up, uh, I couldn't find Neuromancer. I picked up Count Zero Interrupt or Count Zero first. Mm-hmm. Read that, and that just changed the way I thought about everything, about language, about plot, about character. I had been writing before that, but I had been writing essentially shit. Uh, and then after <laughs> that, I stopped writing shit. But yeah, that was a, a big change in the way I approached books in general and science fiction and fantasy in specific. Not to denigrate Lommer and, and Saberhagen, but they're not William Gibson. Um, mm-hmm. Pretty much no one is. I think that's a fair statement for a pretty large chunk of the field. Well, I originally pitched this notion of talking about religion in science fiction and fantasy because it's something that's been of interest to me for quite a while. I, the first time I remember really thinking, like seeing religion being portrayed and, and the beliefs and also behaviors of people being kind of really important, C.S. Friedman's Cold Fire Trilogy is a book about people on a planet with magic. And the magic, it's called the Fae, and it basically responds to people's kind of beliefs and unconscious desires. And there is a religion that is about trying to bring back the monotheism, and it, it's kind of implied the Christianity, of Earth in order to let people live the way they did on Earth rather than always being influenced by the Fae. And because a lot of what's going on is people's unconscious fears manifest as as demons that are preying on them. And so it's this religion that in the midst of a world where magic exists and where things that have been created by humans become almost gods because they, they keep getting more and more power as more and more people believe in them. There's this group of people who is trying to harness faith in order to basically get rid of magic. And I realized that I hadn't read a whole lot of books that centered kind of the notion that, that faith and the way people try to interact with the world that they live in and and what happens after the world that they live in and how that impacts not only their beliefs, but also how they act and what sorts of symbols they hang on to. I realized that had been kind of missing and that I really, when I see that and when I see that done well and respectfully, I really enjoy it. Like it's, it's just one of those things that kind of pushes a button for me. Yeah. So I'm, I'm following your blog after having discovered you and I come across this blog post that starts, I'm careful with religion. I've gone through various phases of belief and zealotry, various degrees of faithfulness. I've settled into a deep state of deep thoughtfulness about about religion. And you talked about the religion of the pagan knight and a creation myth associated with it and, and the notion of the church. And I said, all right, I'm reading this book. Like, <laughs> this is something I don't see very often. This is excellent. Like, I, Not only am I, am I going to read the book, but I had at that point read the first of your Veridon books. And I figured, okay, I'm probably going to enjoy it. And I'm even more likely to enjoy it now that I've seen your your thoughts about religion. So I'm curious what some of your your notions of how that fits and what sorts of books you've seen it in. There are cases where I, like I say, I'm careful with religion. I, I used to be very, uh, I don't want to say anti-religion, but very skeptical of it. And skeptical not just of the idea of belief, but the value of religion itself. And I've gotten past that. One of, one of the, the books that I think does that well is uh, Mistborn by Brandon Sanderson. And it's interesting because I initially had a very bad reaction to that book. I'm specifically talking about the third book in the series where Sazid uh, goes through his belief and unbelief and then back to belief again. 
Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because, you know, Brandon's a friend of mine and I know him to be a, a faithful Mormon. And it's more interesting in knowing Brandon's position on things than it is just as a book itself. And I think that my initial bad reaction, part of the problem was the path to unbelief that was portrayed in the book is what I can consider to be a, a very simple path and one that I had witnessed too often in real life and found to be a weak approach. Someone who goes through some sort of tragedy and all of a sudden that causes them to turn away from faith. Mm-hmm. I, I find that to be a weak position. I think that when you approach a faith, when you have a faith, that faith and that theology needs to be able to account for the obvious tragedy in other people's lives all the time. Otherwise, mm-hmm. lack a, a certain basic human empathy. So that portrayed path was one that I found to be weak or soft. And he was an unusual position because Sazid knew that none of, that these things were not true. He was charged with collecting all these religions and stuff. And he was aware that all of these various religions believe different things. If you have that knowledge, you can look and see that either they're incompatible or something. And that if they had been completely wiped off the face of the earth, there is nothing that would have drawn you to a specific faith from observing the natural world. The thing that that atheists often say is that if you wiped out all religion on earth and started over, or all knowledge on Mm -hmm. on earth and started over, you'd you'd come back to the same point in science, but the religion that you'd come come to would be entirely different. And they they hold that as some value of truth. I think there would be similarities, but, you know, the, the actual specific tenets of any one faith would, wouldn't have, have gone ahead. So I, I reacted very badly to it and actually had to put the book away for a while. And then I came back to it and read the full thing. And that's when I saw his belief or his understanding of a persistence of faith, regardless of the truth of that faith. And that's the thing I can respect, oddly enough. That's the thing where it's like faith and reason are different things. There's no reasonable reason to be faithful, but if you are faithful outside of reason, that's perfectly fine, as long as you don't then try to use that faith to contradict reason. I remember having a slightly different reading, which was that it didn't seem to me that Sazid had... It always felt to me like he had knowledge of religion, but not much faith in it. No, I, I would say that's more or less correct. Sazid's final decision or realization was that the specific tenets of any individual religion were irrelevant and that what actually mattered was the power of belief. Yeah, because I I had found Sazid's initial approach and this notion that that because I know lots of tenets of religion, I therefore know what there is to know of that religion. Like there is no leap of faith until until the very end when when there is a leap of faith. When I find a book that talks about cultures relationship to its its deities or or lack of deities, th- then I just derive a lot of pleasure out of that. I've actually just started reading City of Stairs, and I'm, I'm interested in it because it is a world where religion, and I know you haven't read the book yet, yeah, so I'll, no, I'll, no, I'll, I'll, no I'll avoid spoilers. spoilers but, but So this is actually something you know right off the bat. It is a world where there were gods. They were utterly real. You know, they, they walked the earth and then someone managed to kill them all. And the what's left in the aftermath of that is sort of central to, to the narrative. And it's it's interesting. I'm only about halfway through it, but I'm enjoying it a lot because it's a lot a, a lot about the culture's sense of identity once they've lost that connection to godhood. So I said for me I, I like seeing practices. I like seeing someone 
taking some time out of their day or out of their week to sort of do something religious. There is a almost throwaway scene in the Insulary Justice where, like, they cast lots or tokens. You know, the captains every day cast these tokens and read the read the augurs. There is within the book both an acknowledgement that when you're casting obscure tokens and predicting how the day is going to go, you can twist them to what you want to see, but also that, like, this is an important part of what's going on. And the rats are generally seen as fairly rational, scientific, right? And there, there is usually a divide both in, in culture and in many books of, of sort of the reasonable and rational view versus the religious faith, which is not entirely rational view, and that those things must be in conflict. And I, I think I really liked that you could have societies that could build spaceships that could also say ritual and practice are important to us. Yeah, I, I think that a lot of that tendency in science fiction and fantasy is a result of Star Trek because a lot of like the Federation of Planets and, and stuff, they talk about how they've essentially done away with religion or they view religion only as kind of a cultural artifact. Yes. Before we talk about The Pagan Night, which is out today, Tuesday the 19th, I have some short fiction recommendations from Charles Pesur. Charles is a short fiction reviewer at quicksipreviews.blogspot.com, and he has noticed a trend in some of the short fiction he is reading recently, recently being the last quarter of 2015 mostly. I'm going to let Charles talk about his stories, then I will bring back the rest of our interview with Tim, where he tells us about the inspiration for The Pagan Night. The three that I'm going to sort of pick on are from fourth quarter 2015, and I'm going to mention one that was from late third quarter 2000. Organize my thoughts around what I perceive as millennial fiction, which is something that I've been sort of thinking about recently. And when I talk about millennial fiction, like the story that first put me on to that was Please Undo This Hurt by Seth Dickinson, which appeared on Tor.com in September of 2015. It sort of embodies how I think of some millennial fiction, because it's basically a conversation between two characters. One of them is a straight white guy. One of them is a paramedic, non-white woman, and they're talking about the prospect of doing harm and being involved in a system that perpetuates harm. You know, what can be done, basically, to make one not culpable for the hurt that others suffer for systemic oppression. There have been other stories that I have read in this vein, but this is the one that crystallizes everything much more, because I see certain patterns have arisen now in later stories that complicate this idea and, and give sort of a contrast. Stories that are in some ways in conversation with, or can be in conversation with, that story. And the first of those that I would point to, and perhaps the most, like, explicitly echoing of those ideas, is First Do No Harm by Jonathan Edelstein, which appeared in Strange Horizons in mid-November. Now, in this story, we see a society that has fallen from a higher technology base. It has lost a lot of knowledge when it comes to medicine. And you see the main character wanting to innovate in new ways and coming up against the idea that that's not the way to do things, that first you have to regain all the knowledge that was there before, because otherwise you're putting patients at risk with untested treatments. Caveat of that is there are 
patients who are dying because they do not have treatments recovered yet for what they they are dying of. And so the main character wants to try something new and different, and is sort of coming up against the establishment telling him no. Now, again, in this story, there's a conversation going on between two characters, a man and a woman, about what is the right thing to do. In some ways, it's, it's a question of privilege, because the man who's the main character has the freedom to be part of the highest group, the, the doctors. He could be established, he could try to do good from that position of privilege, or he could choose not to and lose that and have to sort of start at the bottom and see what good he could do there. And this is something that sort of comes up with the stories that I'm going to be looking at. First, this story, and also To Die Dancing by Sam J. Miller, which appeared in in Apex number 78, which was the November issue. And in this story, again, we see the main character who is a gay man, but who is sort of passing, or who has been allowed to pass in this heavily fundamentally Christian society where being gay is illegal. And the character is waiting for this chance to rise up and rebel against this totalitarian stifling system. The way that that story sort of plays out is how he is shown to be culpable for a lot of bad shit, basically, because of that waiting, because he is putting off the moment of revolution, where he is not wanting to be someone who takes charge of this. In some ways, he's too comfortable where he is to risk all of that, to start from the bottom. Like the main character in First Do No Harm, there's that risk that if you stand up for what you believe in, you become a target. You lose a lot of your privilege. And while in To Die Dancing, you see that the main character has privilege, even though it's harmful to him, too. In both of these stories, in First Do No Harm and To Die Dancing, that's sort of what the characters are struggling with, is that though they are privileged, the privilege harms them, and they in turn harm others through their passing. In neither of those stories is the answer as clear as it appears in Please Undo This Hurt, which offers the idea that... You cannot opt out of the system, at least um, the sort of thing is there's a pill in that thing which allows you to basically erase your existence and erase yourself backwards so that you have done no harm. And the story ends with that idea that that's not the answer, that if all the people who felt the, the pain of their actions opted out of the system, it would leave behind only those who didn't care and would therefore be even worse. And sort of stops there, and these stories take that a bit further, and are saying, no, you can't opt out of life, killing yourself is not the answer, but in some ways you are required to take a stand for something, you are required to try, and in some ways lose the power that you think is helpful, the privilege that these people assume is making them powerful, you know, you have to in some ways either give that up or go fully at it. There's a character in To Die Dancing who has used his privilege and passing privilege to try and affect change and is actually doing something and risking himself for this movement and for his own morality. And that's sort of the thing, that risk is inherent and that if you're not taking risks in some ways, you are complacent in a system that is hurting others. And even if 
killing yourself is not the answer. It's not exactly great that you're just existing. Third story, and the last one that I'm going to sort of talk about in relation to this, is Rupert Wong Cannibal Shack by Cassandra Kaw, which appeared from Abaddon Books in October. Uh, it is a novella, and not available for free online that I'm aware of, but it is definitely worth buying. In this one, again, you have a character in Rupert Wong who is sort of dealing with an oppressive and corrupt society, where he's the employee, in some ways, of this pantheon of gods who's using him to do bad things in order so that he can commute his sentence in hell, and it's fairly complex situation that he's in. And the way that it mirrors these other ones is because he too is in this conversation where he's given the option, basically, of not participating in the corrupt and therefore making himself a target, or participating in the corrupt system and passing on all the harm. Now, where you saw in First Do No Harm, the main character deciding that he's not going to take part in the system, and to die dancing where you see the main character struggling with having taken part and having passed the buck. Here in Rupert Wong, you see a character who is much less conflicted about his own privilege. In some ways, because things suck so much for him, he's blinded to the fact that what he's doing makes the situation worse. And so it's sort of a much grittier... I hesitate to say much greater because to die dancing is a very gritty, disturbing story, but he's participating in it. In some ways, he's blind then to what he's doing. He's taking the way out that the other stories basically say don't. And in some ways, he's using the, the justification from please undo this hurt in order to do it, that he's thinking in some ways that he can't opt out of the system because opting out of the system will lead to the hurt of those he cares about. And so he's basically in there to try and do good and is so blinded by the privilege and power that he has that he has to use the corruption in order to try and help people. And that every time he has the option of perhaps not doing that, he goes right for it. He's not a nice person. He's an entertaining character to watch, and he's very interesting in the story itself. does a lot with, with corruption and morality, and it's sort of just furthering on some trends, I guess, I've seen in short fiction somewhat recently, or that I've just started to notice when it comes to the idea of opting out of systems of corruption and figuring out how to minimize one's harmful footprint, or perhaps looking at more than that, how to revolt or rebel in a way that is meaningful. In To Die Dancing and Please Undo This Hurt, you have stories where the main characters are not let off the hook because it might kill them to act. That, in some ways, having to deal with that fact, making a target of yourself, is becomes one of the only moral actions. In some ways, passing is not enough, and trying to, to, to fix a system from the inside requires risk, that if it's safe, it's probably not doing the good that it can. Rupert Wong, Cannibal Chef, To Die Dancing, and First to Do No Harm are all very excellent stories, and I recommend them highly. Go check them out. Even Please and Do This Hurts is a very interesting story, which I would uh, recommend people go and read. Okay, we are back with Tim Akers talking about the inspiration behind The Pagan Night, which is out today, Tuesday, January 19th. It's available from all fine booksellers. I will have links in the show notes both to the book and some of Tim's other posts about it in case you'd like more information. 
for now some of the inspirations that led to the pagan night there are two influences for this book. The first is the integration of the Angles and the Saxons, the way that the cultures intermingled in You're early England. All of my buttons. This is wonderful. <laughs> I'm so looking forward to this book. This is my job. It's what I do. And the other is the integration of paganism into medieval Christianity. Mm -hmm. And those those things were not contemporaneous. There's probably about a century divide between them, but the the mechanism is is largely the same. The way that I approached it was the established church, what people are going to probably equate with the Catholic Church, but it's really it's really Druidism that's just been taken to the nth degree. Druidism that has lasted long enough and been exposed to enough technological advancement that it develops the architecture of what we think of as traditional religion. It has churches, it has bishops, it has choirs and religious rites and all that stuff. That religion has overthrown a more of a Shintoist or a pantheist religion, but the gods of that religion were not destroyed, just the practice was destroyed. So... Oh, okay. The gods are left behind. They still exist in the world, but without uh, the worshippers to take care of them, they've gone feral. Just a random example, you have a river god who is in charge of the flooding and so forth of this river, and he manifests on a calendar because everything is based on the calendar for these these people. And he still does that, but he's gone nuts. So sometimes he manifests and starts flooding villages and stuff. And so the established church, the celestial church, has uh, a division of people whose job it is to kill the feral gods of the old religion. One of the things about the celestial church that I enjoy and, and enjoyed creating was I wanted to approach this idea of a church that worships both good and evil and recognizes both as being existent and necessary in the world. The seed for that uh, was Mesoamerican religions because all of their gods were balanced. They were both good and bad. They were There was a lot of duality in that religion. The most common example is uh, Quetzalcoatl, who is the feathered serpent, the rainbow. You know, he's the storm, he's the cloud, he's the rain that feeds the crops, that feeds then the people, but he's also the hurricane, the flood, the destructive force of, of nature. So I had a god of passion and a god of reason. One of them is summer, one of them is winter, one of them is light, one of them is dark. And in a lot of ways, winter is evil because it, it exists to kill, mm -hmm. but it also exists to strengthen. And there are all these sort of interactions between the two religions. And one of the things that gets developed in the longer trilogy is sort of a schism between those two branches of the faith. I've heard a lot of really interesting influences. When you said that duality seems key and important to you, that, that feels like a really a pretty significant shift from the history that I know and the pseudo-medieval Europe that so many things end up getting set in. I'm curious whether there were any pitfalls you found yourself trying to avoid. Well, I mean, the, the typical problem is you have a church that worships both good and evil, how to make evil good enough to have it still be something that people would rationally worship or faithfully worship without it being, you know, kind of forced. Like one of the problems with Harry Potter was always, you know, you just pretty much need to lock up all the Slytherins and, and throw away the key. There's no reason to let those people wander the world. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I approached that by uh, having one of the main characters be, a, be an inquisitor. And he, he does things for a reason, and it's not just because it's what he's always done. He came to that faith and executes it and prosecutes it because he believes it's the best thing to do. Mm -hmm. And then you show that character change over time from 
you know, the faithful inquisitor to the questioning inquisitor, the inquisitive inquisitor, <laughs> and then eventually the heretic. And it's that path toward heresy that I find most interesting. The book does sort of follow the path of three different people who begin the book in different faith traditions, and all of them become heretics and move, you know, away from that and then back toward it. As long as you ground a thing like that in a character and you make the character believable, I think the, the reader will follow you. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm really looking forward to it and excited to read it. Each episode closes with a memory of a significant book, the right book at the right time, an interesting find, or just something that stuck around. Well, it has to be Neuromancer, just because that had such an influence on on my early readership and writership, because it, it's a book that holds up pretty well. Uh, the technology obviously is kind of ruined, but the themes and stuff uh, really, it was such a seminal book, not just for me as a reader, but kind of for uh, that generation of, of science fiction and fantasy readers, I think. Or at least I feel that it is. I could be completely wrong. That was just a very influential book. And I, I go back and read it every couple of years just to kind of remind myself of how important it was to me as a writer, especially. I had kind of an odd high school and... Uh, I think one-eighth of my overall senior English grade was based on a single paper. And you could pick any book. They had a, a recommended list, but you could pick anything. And I picked Neuromancer. And so I read that book, I think, like 40, 14 times just for that thing. And I had to write two papers on it, and I had to give an oral presentation. And uh, I, I knew that book backwards and forwards at the time. It's just a good book. It's enjoyable. It's not only, not only does it have heavy ideas, but it also, uh, has a, a good plot and good characters and it hits on all cylinders as far as I'm concerned. You don't read a lot of books that are able to not only tell a good story, but build a good world, but also bring really heavy thematic elements into play. And I think he, he really kind of knocked it out of the park, as they say. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at jsuttonmorse. The show is on Twitter at kingcabbagecast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly, a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.